Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to GradCast live at the Western Research Forum 2016. I'm Tristan Johnson here with Tanya Nagpal. Hello. Hello. And I am here with, sorry, I didn't catch your name. Susan Bird. Susan Bird. And you're here doing a poster. That's correct. I'm doing a poster on the inadequate access to community registered dietitian services for a high-risk, vulnerable patient population. All right. So so what, uh, what kind of work are you doing to figure out what's going on here? Well, we actually were approached by a feeding group in London who said that um, pediatric children in London, Ontario were not able to access community registered dietetic services and they wanted us to look into this problem and see what exactly was happening and try to quantify the number of children that were kind of falling through the cracks. So we went out and we asked some pediatricians to, sir, or to record the number of children that they were referring to community registered dietetic services as well as the number of times they wanted to refer children. And we captured that information. And what we found was that pediatricians were regularly referring children to uh, registered dietitians in the community. And these referrals were being quite routinely denied. So they were not able to access the services for an unidentified need. So anywhere between um, 50 to 90% of children with an identified need were not able to access services in the community. Uh, by registered dietitians. So this was providing a problem not only for the professionals, but it also was having an impact on the children and their caregivers as well. So you can see that um, it really had far-reaching effects. Could you maybe provide examples of what were some of the reasons the children were being referred to the dietitians in the first place? Absolutely. So pediatricians were seeing children with uh, feeding issues, so things like feeding tubes or failure to thrive where they weren't gaining enough weight based on a predetermined uh, growth curve and they were kind of falling off that growth curve or just for general infant nutrition as well so things like constipation or other uh, issues like that and so they were really looking for the expertise of a dietitian and they needed to see a dietitian within the community because there really isn't um, a really good inpatient service for those children to be able to access that type of uh, service so they were looking for community dietitians to go out and to meet with these children to help uh, resolve these particular feeding issues. And so, um, in terms of possible reasons for why they were getting denied, even though they have these obvious uh, dietary concerns that they would need a dietitian for, is that sort of where your research is headed? Yeah, absolutely. That'll be the next step for our research. So we've identified that there is absolutely a gap out there where children are not being seen. The next step would be to figure out, you know, exactly why that gap is there. So we've talked to um, people at the CCAC uh, level who provide community dietetic services to ask them, you know, why exactly children aren't being accepted. And a lot of times they'll say, well, these children are able to go to outpatient resources and that they should be able to access those um, community or those resources within a hospital setting or within a family health team and the problem is is that there's not always those resources available for them and there's actually a gap in resources um, in outpatients as well within London area so um, you can see that there's a bit of a uh, a, a problem there where the CCAC community advisors or community directors don't really understand the, the issue of the gaps in services. So there needs to be a bit of education around that as well. So what kind of recommendations would you have then? 
Well, I think we really need to look at uh, what exactly the problem is, but I think the overall recommendation is that we absolutely need to get more registered, registered dietitians in areas that are accessible to this particular population. So whether that be in family health teams or whether that be in outpatient um, services or whether that be in a community facilitated um, thing like a CCAC, then that is the way that we'd have to have to go. So we need to be able to get more community dietitians in areas that are accessible to these children. And that's just like overall with healthcare, we're, we always want to see an interdisciplinary approach. So a child with feeding issues, aside from their pediatrician, they would also need to be seeing other healthcare professionals. So do you kind of see the role of a dietitian, um, sorry, do you see that the role of the dietitian currently is lacking in the pediatric environment and that could be potentially why? you're seeing these denials? Yeah, absolutely. And when we ask the health professionals about the uh, role of registered dietitians, they all said that, that it's a, they provide a unique service that most healthcare professionals don't feel that they can provide. So they have unique services, they have an expertise, and we absolutely need to work in an interdisciplinary fashion to be able to solve a lot of these feeding issues because we know that feeding issues are linked to not just nutrition but lots of other different health factors as well. So we need to work in those um, team environments to be able to solve the issues. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you. You have a really good poster. Hello, everybody. Welcome to GradCast, uh, live again at uh, the Western Research Forum. I'm Tristan Johnson here with Emma Bridgewater. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How are you? It's been an exciting and lively day, has not? It's very interesting to see all of these uh, different research going on across campus. Mm-hmm. And so like, to give a short story, we were here, uh, we were listening to the first panel, and who do we see but a uh, veteran, a uh, GradCast veteran, Anandita Ghosh, coming on and speaking, and not about spouses that kill their partners. Uh, so it was a completely new topic, but... I had to ask her to come back and talk to us because it was a topic almost identical or at least um, very similar to the research that I did for my uh, my first master's. And so I really wanted to come down. So tell us a little bit about what you were talking about this morning. Well, thank you so much for bringing me up. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. And obviously, it gives me an opportunity to also... Um, you know, elaborate my ideas and articulate it to a wider audience. So thank you so much. You guys do a great job with this. So uh, yes, I decided to give a talk today uh, based on uh, my primary area of training, which is in information science, and particularly I specialized in surveillance studies. And, uh, and that degree was at the University of Toronto, Faculty of Information. So I ended up writing a research paper for uh, as part of my degree that looked at the racialization of surveillance identities and I happened to look at it in terms of national security interest and context as it pertains to Western countries, so namely um, United States, Canada, Australia and the United Kingdom. So this is an extremely exciting area of research because again, you know surveillance is something that has been very closely linked uh, morally, philosophically and also socioeconomically in terms of policy development especially in the context of the 9-11 era, Mm -hmm. Um, but also this is an area of information that has been largely 
protected by the government and there has been a power imbalance in terms of what citizens know, what citizens have the right to know and how citizens can challenge uh, these practices in terms of surveillance. Now, of course, I want to preface my conversation today by saying that I'm not saying that surveillance is an important uh, aspect of our society as it functions in terms of uh, maintaining security, law and order. But what I'm saying, and, and my conversation is really about practices and methodologies uh, guiding these surveillance practices. Mm-hmm. So like to kind of like just suppose, I'll, I'll give you a little bit about what I did and what, uh, see where we build bridges here. Sure. So I studied the um, creation of the, is like the creation of the evil Muslim uh, identity mm-hmm. after the September 11th attack. So like the, how did we create uh, how did America create this identity of the Muslim that is uh, brown-skinned, irrational, violent, and scary? When, like, if you look at like the the stereotypes before were very different, and so like I was kind of figuring out how we build those how we build those identities. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Like, I did not realize it's exactly... I know you kept on repeating and saying that, oh, I did something very, very similar. But, mm-hmm. oh, my God, this is exactly on point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just to put it into context, so, uh, you know, as you know, Tristan and Emma, that my my talk was really talking about race as a category of deviance and how it informs and directs surveillance practices, right? And particularly, I boiled it down to this... Um, uh, a term browning in surveillance literature and it goes back to this idea of the brown skinned deviant identity the threat the other in the society right and um, so a part of my talk really what I was interested in from a research point of view is to analytically simplify and create a roadmap as to how do these identities not only get created but stabilized how do they from an information point of view how is this knowledge spread, sustained, mm-hmm. and continues to reproduce itself? That's an important question. And of course, I do recognize that in, in the scope of my talk, there is an oversimplification that has happened, but it's analytically still valuable in terms mm-hmm. of understanding and understanding core elements of this discussion. Mm-hmm. So like, let's talk a little bit about the, um, we both mentioned the moral panic. I'm, are you going with the Stuart Hall type of, like, the whole like mugging example that he gave or mm-hmm. uh, are we I just want to make sure we're speaking the same yes, language yes yes actually and I think a lot of these works are interrelated in terms of how they have been built so of, of course like uh, philosophically yes you are correct to point out that it does come out from Stuart Hall's uh, our work on community and in terms of uh, 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 creating the discourse of the moral panic um, I particularly built on Cohen's work and I believe I, it was a, he was a soci- sociologist and it talked about Uh, uh, moral panic in terms of for an identity to be created as being deviant. So obviously uh, the point that needs to be elaborated over here that when you're talking about browning, it's an artificial Mm -hmm. information creation process. There is nothing called uh, uh, browning as an actual sociological phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So with the the idea that I created around building off the idea of the moral panic is that you have you have an incident, you have a situation that is created and it's prefaced in some kind of an event. So in this case, let's take the um, example of the 9-11 attacks. That was a, a historical uh, incident 
in people's memory that was connected to terrorism and what terrorism means in the new global age, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a moral panic created. Oh my God, terrorism doesn't mean somebody's going to come after you with guns. We can now use aircrafts as a technology, as a weapon to attack. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's very different from, uh, of course, there were precursors in terms of hijacking as uh, being incidents of terrorism. But that was very different than a methodological uh, planning in terms of training and being able to execute uh, what one would say a very, very substantially uh, and ib- elaborate scope in terms of a attack, a world mm-hmm. attack. And so, like, uh, just like I'm hoping I can get your idea here then, then um, the response especially by the state or by those interested in um, how do you preempt another 9-11 attack? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the um, explosion of the security culture that built up. And that would be how do you protect or how do you um, protect against attacks that don't come with, that don't happen in like uh, conventional ways. So like it's not the fact that they used airplanes, but it's the fact that they use something unexpected. And how do you defend yourself against the fundamentally unexpected, which... Um, I guess the answer that they went with is just monitor absolutely everything. Um, Or just monitor things. I I guess that's one way to look at it, but it was also a way for them to legitimize what became very invasive practices. And we haven't really seen results in these invasive practices in terms of actually being able to detect and prevent terrorism. Mm -hmm. Because after 9-11, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, we have still had terrorist attacks going on. So, and I think we are sufficiently technologically uh, well-equipped to be able to detect a lot of stuff than what was the case maybe 50 or 60 years back, right? So a lot of this is, it boils down to rhetoric of justification, Mm -hmm. right? And actually, I would argue that it makes, uh, at least in the case of the United States, less safe because like, uh, if you look at like reports from like the FBI, especially since about 2009, 2010, They've always said it over and over again on their terrorism reports that the number one terrorist threat in the United States are fundamentalist, like right wing, like militia group type things, as we saw like the, earlier this year, or uh, neo Nazis and and racist groups. Mm-hmm. Yet, I think a lot of people would generally say that, as you as you would argue that the official and unofficial ways we surveil are very much targeted to people who are either of Arabic, South Asian, or North African descent, Mm -hmm. which uh, I don't think a lot of Arabs or North Africans or South Asians are members of white supremacist groups. That's just my guess, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point, right? It it is a great point. And that's... uh, and, And that's... Uh, means my interest in terms of surveillance methodology is identifying a combination of variables that can help predict better results in terms of prevention, right? And uh, time and time again, as it seems to be the case with surveillance practices or or what research is showing, is that race can be a partial indicator, but it is not a key indicator to be able to prevent and surveillance people in terms of if you're trying to avoid a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. It's actually an inaccurate uh, indicator. means one of my research projects uh, at the Faculty of Information at U of T was looking at data mining methods methodologies to be able to uh, uh, track sleeper cells and uh, terrorist activities. And uh, the thing is that 
identity, uh, demographic identities are not reflective of group activities. And that's what it boils down to, you know. Uh, and I, I, in my talk, I gave the example of Michael Roche, who I uh, was, uh, you know, one of uh, Australia's chief bureaucrats in terms of uh, Australia's security intelligence organization. And after the London bombings, I believe in 2005, he made a public appeal in terms of uh, to the citizens of the country to surveillance foreigners or foreigners specifically of Middle Eastern South Asian descent who were portrayed as the threat. Mm -hmm. And like post 9-11, I also remember that things like monitoring of Muslim groups, Mm -hmm. uh, monitoring of mosques, uh, even things like doing aerial uh, Geiger counter surveillance of Muslim neighborhoods to look for radioactive material. Um, And these things are still being discovered as of like 2010 uh, as ongoing things. Did well, you have some? I was actually gonna gonna ask if this like this focus is actually. Give me a minute here. Um, shit, I just forgot my question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if this focus on like the other and this Browning that you talk about has actually contributed to making things worse because mm-hmm. the theme that this isn't my area of research but the theme that I get out of like the newspapers and everything is that the, the peop- when you get terrorist attacks at home that match these groups which isn't necessarily the majority of them it's always a case of there isn't proper integration they don't feel welcome in their cult in the the culture that they've come to and they feel really othered and so by having this you know you need to watch the Muslims in your community is this actually increasing the chances that we're going to see more attacks at home from yeah you'd even I'd also say like um, in San, uh, during the San Bernardino shootings because I was obsessively watching the news when that was happening you remember seeing that um, there was a lot of people being like it was extremely important to figure out what color mm-hmm. this person was because mm-hmm. like if he was white everyone would have gone into the gun control right, uh, hysteria exactly. if he had been black who knows what they would have talked about. It would about. have been the ghetto culture and mm-hmm. his socioeconomic background and mm-hmm. being raised in poverty or being related to gangs that yeah. would have come and, up. And if it's a, a Muslim or a brown person, it's terrorism. Exactly. Yeah. So we're all being stereotyped. And you're absolutely right, Emma, in, in your interpretation that a lot of this rhetoric is not about, uh, there is the scope of functionality Right, and then the scope of legitimization, and I think we have seen that it really doesn't contribute to the functionality aspect in terms of prevention and detection. Mm -hmm. It really is contributing in the area of legitimizing what one would say state-sponsored racism, right? And it's also, if you think about how human psychology, I'm not a psychologist, but think about how human psychology works in terms of rhetoric, they're almost directing our energies into focusing onto other variables instead of the bigger political questions, right? Mm -hmm. As to where was the U.S. government when all of this training was apparently happening and all this planning? They used U.S. airlines to be able to execute those attacks, you know? Uh, U.S. is one of, it's a superpower. How could they not have seen this coming? There were important political questions around this, right? It's distracting the audience's energies and thoughts onto, oh, no, 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 don't focus on those questions. Focus on who did it Mm -hmm. and how can we get rid of these people? Yeah, and so uh, I guess I'll just close. I'll give you the last word to discuss. Did you come up with any interesting recommendations or interesting um, insights uh, through all this research? 
I think uh, in terms of, uh, you know, again, this was a pretty short scoped research and it's obviously an area which is more systemic in nature. It is the solutions are not easily addressed by saying, oh, we need to uh, just do this or recognize people as, uh, uh, you know, as uh, equal it means those are lip service, right? The recommendations, as we know, are something which is uh, harder to implement and also much harder to achieve in, in, in some sense. But I think some of the important points that I can draw out for our listeners to think about is what do these practices mean, right? One of the justification that's forwarded is the utilitarian argument that this is an inconvenience for a relatively small group of people to achieve a broader goal of national security, mm-hmm. right? Um, the other thing that we have seen a lot come up in the political environment as it pertains to Canada and privacy rights and the monitoring of internet traffic and everything like that. If you have nothing to hide, what's the big deal if you're surveillancing you? Right. But we all can intuitively think, well, no, there are issues with that. There's power imbalance. And we all have been subject at some point in time where we have seen how bureaucracies can turn policies around in their favor. Right. Um, The last two points that I want to bring up over here, uh, going back to Mm -hmm. the tie up of this conversation, is in Canada, we have the constitutional right to be assumed innocent till proven guilty. But if you think about these kind of practices and practices targeted on enhanced surveillance on a particular group of people based on what seems to be an artificially created imagination of these group of people as being the problem, what does it do to these kind of constitutional rights, right? Mm-hmm. Are we not it. Exactly. Are we morally or philosophically not assuming that there is a certain level of guilt already there, mm-hmm. right? Or perception of probable guilt, right? Um, so that's the thing. And the last point that I talked about is in terms of, and this is, a, uh, this is a subject that's very close to my heart, is in terms of multiculturalism, right? Uh, Canada is obviously prides itself on multiculturalism and prides itself on immigration, prides itself on uh, people recognizing and celebrating diversity and their heritage. What does it do in uh, a political climate where people are being singled out for having a certain heritage to acknowledging that you're Mm Indo-Canadian or that you're British Muslim or that you're, uh, you know, of uh, African-Canadian descent? Like, what does that do for people in terms of recognition and being able to celebrate those differences? So obviously these these conversations are... uh, are difficult, but they're nonetheless important to have. And I think uh, from a research point of view, these are important to be able to continue to inform practices and policies. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. I, I mean, not to open a can of words, but also like it gives us stuff to think about when it comes to like the way we're reacting to the uh, ab- uh, abhorrent Syrian refugee crisis going on in the way that we're talking about it. So, but thank you so much, Anandita. I really appreciate you coming to talk. Thank to you, us, yeah. Emma and Tristan. You guys are a pleasure. You guys do a great job. Thank you. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.